0: Hi, this is Robert Furl and welcome to Truth Quest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of scripture. Our desire is to know what God says so we can know what to believe, to be like the Bereans who receive the word of God with all joy but search the scriptures to find out whether or not these things were true. It also helps us in that we can truly own something. We can hear somebody say something We can go, I believe it because my pastor taught it or I believe it because I heard someone say this or a friend of mine believes it and they explained it to me. But when you take time to really look it up yourself, make sure that it's right, that you really believe that that's what the Bible is saying, then you take ownership of it. When you take ownership of it, the word of God begins to work in your life. And the Bible says that if God's word falls on a good heart, it can produce 30, 60, and 100-fold, which is, by the way, a lot of fold. So, good to see you guys and welcome to our Wednesday Q&A. Our first question is, today is, is it a good idea for Christians of different denominations to marry? Another passage that I want to put up here on the screen as we begin to talk about this. So, um, the Bible does tell us in 2nd Corinthians that we are not supposed to be unequally yoked. For what fellowship, what koinonia, does righteous have with unrighteous? Does good have with evil? And getting married is one of the most important decisions that you can make. And the fact that many Christians will marry someone who is a non-Christian, even though they know that the Bible tells them this, will tell you that there are a lot of people who believe that they a lot of christians who believe that they know better than god that what god says what they believe and when it comes to the heart and falling in love with someone it's easy to look over those things and to think it doesn't apply to me well i think that the the context of don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers is not marriage it's in general it's a general context that we don't have that in our fellowship in things that are really important with unbelievers. So, we could say that if there is a Christian who is a Lutheran, who is really serious about God, truly been born again, really serious about God, and there is someone who attends a non-denominational church, but they're not very serious about God at all, then you don't want the Lutheran to marry the non-denominational because you're going to find difficulties and problems and to think well i'm going to win them over i'm going to make them more serious about god um after my late wife had died and uh, about i don't know a year and a half later maybe a year and six months um i got set up on a date with a christian and when we went out to to dinner um, they said so you're a pastor and i said yeah and they said are you serious about your faith?" And right away it was like, oh, this dinner is a waste of time. Because if a pastor has to be asked if he's serious about his faith, what kind of pastor is going to go, no, I'm not serious about my faith at all. And she ends up she wasn't serious about her faith and that's why she was asking the question. Um, it's, it, re- remember, denominationalism is ultra-biblical. And what I mean by that is it's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that we are supposed to have sectarianism, that we're supposed to divide ourselves into groups. In fact, I want to show you this passage that I've got up that really tells us that if we are overly denominational, If we think that our denomination is what really matters and not being in Christ, there's a real problem. This is sectarianism. Listen to what it says. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, this is amazing because he's going to go on to tell the Corinthians in this letter that they fall behind in none of the spiritual gifts. And he's going to talk about the spiritual gifts that they are using. And that tells us that you don't, that you can receive spiritual gifts and be immature. A lot of people believe the fact that they have a spiritual gift is a sign for them of maturity. It is not. You can come behind in none of the spiritual gifts and still be carnal. He says, Paul says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now you were unable to receive it. And even now you are still not able. They're still not mature. For you are still carnal. That answers our question by the way of whether or not there can be a carnal Christian. Can you have a carnal Christian? Yes. Paul says the Corinthians are carnal. For whether there are where there are envies and strifes and divisions among, among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You're not behaving like Christian believers. And look at what he says. For where there's strife and divisions, that's why the Bible says, Let your gentleness be known to all men, be of one accord, of strive to have unity in the faith. Because to not is carnal. And then it goes on to say for when one says i am of paul and another i am of apollos are you not carnal who then is paul and who is apollos but ministers though through whom we believe as the lord gave each one of us i planted apollos watered but god gave the increase so that uh, neither he who plants nor he who waters but god who gives the increase now this is really important because denominationalism can become really important to us. And we can, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Unitarian, I'm a I'm a Calvary Chapelite, whatever it could be. And if you put an emphasis on that, that makes you carnal. But if you put an emphasis on Christ, if you truly love Christ, that's what's important. So the question isn't, are they, I'm a... I'm a Baptist, can I marry a non-denominational? Or should I marry someone who's Catholic? The question is, has the Catholic really made a commitment to Christ? Is he really born again? Or is the non-denominational person really born again? Have they really made a commitment to Christ? That's what's really important. And I'll go even one step further. I think that you should find someone when you're talking about marriage that is as sold out to Christ as you are. If you are deeply in love with Christ and you marry someone who's, eh, you know, I believe in Jesus. Maybe they're going to be like the Christians, the Bible says, are saved as if through fire. But you're going to have a grand entrance into heaven. Sooner or later, there's going to be problems. And where the problems arise is oftentimes in raising children. Uh, Remember, You've got grandparents are going to be involved and grandparents might want, you know, a child to be baptized in whatever denomination they're in. And so you've got to talk about these things before. Certainly, in answer to the question, is it okay for a Christian of a different, Christians of a different denomination to marry? Yes. It's okay. However, you should talk about it. Talk about the differences. Talk about what church you're going to go to because you want to go to those churches. My mother and father, my dad was Lutheran. My mother was Methodist. No, my, mom, my dad was Methodist. My mother is Lutheran. And they ended up going to a Methodist church. We grew up in a Methodist church. I don't know if they talked about it beforehand, but I think it's really good to talk about these differences because they're so important to us as a Christian that we not only don't want to be unequally yoked with a non-believer, we don't want to be unequally yoked with someone who isn't as serious about God as we are. When you do that, There's going to be a lot less problems in your life and a lot less difficulties. And the enemy comes in and I think that pride enters in and we think, not me, I'm okay. I can marry a non-believer because I'm so spiritual. I'll win them over to Christ and I won't have any problems. Make sure that they have a real strong commitment to Christ. Now, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, on our podcast. It's great to see you guys. Um, Yeah, I see a question here. Are you feeling better? Yep, I'm feeling. I, I had COVID, I don't know what, two weeks ago, vaccinated and COVID, by the way, a couple of weeks ago, and I feel great. So thank you for asking. If you're watching online, would you say hi? Just take a moment to say hi. I'd love to know who was watching and um, be able to make some connections with you guys. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and take questions. If you have a question, then go ahead and write out your question. Put a quest, put question in front of it or a question mark or a cue in front of it so that I can identify it as I'm making my way through the comment section here. I also want to welcome Keith Roche. I see him there online. Keith is one of our new mods. Uh, Really good to have you, Keith, uh, here. Um, Thanks for joining us. And if you have a question, reread it a couple of times. Make sure that that your question is clear and um, that it's asking what you want it to ask. Make sure that if you give me a reference, I usually want to look the references up and read them. So if you give me a reference, make sure it's a proper a proper reference and then go ahead and read it. Um, let me see, I think we got a question here from Dog. Um, and I am gonna bring. go ahead and bring that in. Um, and what do we got going on here? Let me see if I wanna fix this a little bit. Just got something I wanna work on here, just a touch. Just to fix, all right, there we go. All right, so let's bring this question in from Dog. So Dog says, I was wondering if someone commits suicide and they are not a believer, do they go to heaven? In my opinion, I believe they do, but what do you think? I was wondering if someone commits suicide and they are not a believer, do they go to heaven? All right, thanks Dog, I really appreciate um, your question. Um, The answer, really, Is not whether or not they commit suicide the answer is whether or not they are born again because jesus said in john chapter 3 now this is jesus and jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners he would rather spend time with tax collectors and sinners than religious people because of their religious hypocrisy so you can you can be a believer and not be following through with what you believe. You can be prideful, you cannot not really have a true relationship with God, even though you might believe in God. You have to be born again. And this means that you are born of the spirit. Jesus said in John chapter three, you, uh, he we told Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, that, that went to go see him at night, probably under the cover of night. And Jesus said to him, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus sarcastically said, how can one be born again? Is he going to enter into his mother's womb one more time? He knew that wasn't possible for an adult to do that. And so Jesus says to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, you've been born of the flesh, but you have to be born of the spirit. The Bible tells us in Corinthians, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God which means I have to have my spirit brought to life. God had told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. They didn't die physically the day they ate of the fruit. They died spiritually. And that means that they have to be brought to life. Now, theologians will differ on exactly what happened. Did the spirit go dormant? Um, Did the the spirit die and need to be brought to life? Um, The Bible tells us, literally, that we have to be brought to life. There's something inside of us that has to be brought to life. I believe that that is the spirit. The Bible tells us that with all of our body, soul, and spirit, we are to serve God. uh, It says in Hebrews that the word of God, gets in between where the soul and the spirit is. So, the soul and the spirit are two distinct things. One is, I think, a consciousness, an awareness, and the other one is that part that relates to God. Jesus said in John 4, unless you are, um, that the day is coming, and even now is, when those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So you have to be born again. And the way you're born again, dog, is to invite Christ into your life. You receive Christ. The Old Testament is full of passages that talk about the Messiah and that you would receive him, you would invite him in, that you would begin to live for him. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So God gave his son through Isaac, who was Jewish, that all the nations would be blessed. And so that all, whether Gentile or Jew, you would have to receive Christ. And that's the question that Billy Graham would ask. Have you received Christ? Have you invited him in? So the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, that as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, then you're not gonna receive your inheritance, which is eternity. And so you believe in him. Jesus said, you believe in God, this is John 14:1, You believe in God, believe also in me. And my father's house are many mansions. I will go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you, that where I am there you may be also. You have to believe in God. you have to believe in Jesus, which doesn't mean believing that he exists. You put your trust and your hope on him, and then you are born again. And if you're watching this now, and you've never made a commitment to Christ, or you're listening to this, and you've never made a commitment to Christ, simply say this prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I invite you into my life. I know my sin has separated me from you, and that you died on the cross for my sins, and I want to live for you. I give up my life now that I might find it, and I want to live wholeheartedly for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, then you've made a genuine commitment to Christ. Now, let's go ahead and take some time to talk about suicide. Um, Let's let's change your question a little bit, dog. It says, you say, I was wondering if someone who committed suicide and is not a believer, if they die, do they go to heaven? Let's just say that they are a believer and they kill themselves. First of all, what a tragedy. But but what if they're genuinely saved? What if things got out of control and their mind got out of control? I think it's possible for a Christian to really love Jesus and to get things out of control, and that ends up taking their lives. I think that the only sin, I think that people say, well, once you kill yourself, you can't regret that and ask for forgiveness. Well, maybe that's true and maybe that's not. Maybe there was some time between the time the person took the pills or hung themselves or or shot themselves that they would have some awareness and could say, I wish I wouldn't have done that, forgive me. But on top of that, Jesus died for all of your sins. I believe even for the ones that are in the future. And it's possible for someone to be so distraught that they could still go to heaven. Now, people will get upset at me because they say, you're giving people a license to go ahead and kill themselves. I'm really not. Listen. If you're distraught now, if your life has taken a horrible, awful turn and you are like, I don't know what to do, I'm I'm depressed, I'm not happy, then die to Christ. Live for Him. Begin now to live your life not for yourself. That can't result in happiness anyway. You live for Him wholeheartedly. And it's possible that if you are so distraught that you've never really made a commitment to Christ. And so, make a full commitment to Him, surrender to Him, and begin to live for Him. What do you have to lose? If you're going to lose your life now anyway, why not? By killing yourself, why not lose it to Christ completely? And begin living for Him. And find the satisfaction and the fulfillment that would come to Christ. So, if I can speak to those of you that may be having suicidal thoughts right now, I would say, surrender everything to Christ live wholeheartedly for Jesus and you're gonna find a new strength and a new spirituality that is going to be absolutely amazing that's going to help you live wholeheartedly for him all right so thank you very much dog for your question I really appreciate that I hope that um, clears that up for you and uh, I will take a follow-up question from you dog if you um, if you have a follow-up question all right? So let's take another question from amber amber says when jesus says flee from me i never knew you is that speaking of people putting faith in their own works instead of the finished work of the cross or if not can you go more in depth on what can be assured that we won't be rebuked all right thank you amber for your question i really appreciate that so jesus prayed In John 17 3 and in this prayer, he tells us what eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life. He tells us. This comes from the the lips of Jesus. This is Jesus telling us what eternal life is. And this is eternal life. That you know the one true God and His Son whom He sent. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we can be saved but the name of Jesus. And you have to know Jesus you can be religious you can go to church you can be religious all of your life you may be watching this now and you are religious you go to church faithfully but the question is do you know jesus it's possible to go to church and not be a christian it's possible to be to be um to 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 believe in the existence of God, to follow the Bible, to think you're a good person and not go to heaven because you don't know him. And so this is what Jesus said and there's a couple different verses. One of them is that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord is gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's gonna say away from me, I never knew you. So you may be calling him Lord, but you've never made a real genuine commitment to him. Then you don't know him. You've got to know him and walk with him. It's, it's about being more than just religious. I'm not going to argue that I'm not religious or that someone that knows Jesus isn't religious. Rituals are connected to being religious. And I understand what the world means by religious. And, and, we, and we like to say, I'm not religious. I love the Lord. Really, it's relationship over religion. The important part of that is that I have a relationship with Christ that I know him, that I interact with him. And the only way to do that is to have your sins forgiven. And Isaiah 53, and this is the Old Testament. A lot of people will claim that Jesus got himself crucified and so the, the early church came up with the idea that Jesus died for their sins. But the Old Testament tells us that God would lay upon him the iniquity of us all, and that he would die for our sins, Isaiah 53. And so, you have to receive what Jesus did for you on that cross. You have to look to the cross. Jesus said in John seventeen three. I mean, excuse me, in John three, with Same passage to Nicodemus. He's talking to Nicodemus, where he's talking about being born again. He says, like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and he will draw all men unto him. So as Jesus is lifted up, we will draw people to him. And that's why we say we have to preach Christ. But even more than just preaching Christ, you have to be born again. Now, there's another passage where Jesus said that people are going to say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And he will say, away from me, for I never knew you. That's different than the one where he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, So did they really do miracles in his name? Did they really cast out demons? Did they just think that he did? I know a lot of Christians who think that they've done a miracle when they haven't done it. I'm not saying God doesn't do miracles or God doesn't heal, but I do know people that believe that they have done miracles or that they have um, uh, done things for Christ. These people may have never have done it or God may have done it for the person because that person had faith in them. They thought they did the miracle, but it wasn't them at all. God was bypassing the fact that they never really knew Jesus. You have to know him to be able to get into heaven. So, with your question, I just kinda wanna reread it, make sure I got it, Amber. Um, When Jesus says, flee from me, I never knew you, is he speaking of people putting their faith in their works instead of the finished work on the cross um yes certainly you can believe that you're saved because you go to church you can believe that you're saved because you've been baptized you can believe that you're saved because you kept the sacraments none of those things can save you we are saved by faith and faith alone putting our faith in jesus christ and living wholeheartedly for him all right So thank you amber i really appreciate it if you're joining us for the very first time here in our q a really glad to have you guys i hope that you are really blessed if you have a question go ahead and write the word question or a q in front of it and go ahead and submit it Uh, our next question comes from jari jari joins us from youtube we have people that are joining us from youtube and facebook to ask these questions so good to see you jari and jari says question is satan after relationships why did satan wait until eve was created before he tempted mankind why not adam alone by himself prior to eve also why eve and not adam all right so there's a few questions snuck in there jari so let's go ahead and and break them down Um, so god creates adam And then Adam names all the animals. And then God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. And then God takes part of his rib, or part of his side, literally, and makes Eve. And I think part of his side, that the woman would be close to to the man's heart. That the woman would be under his arm of protection. I think all of these things are true in the way that God made men and women. I think there's a lot that we can learn from that. Um, But... When it comes to why questions, you know, is why why did God, why did Satan not tempt, tempt Adam and not Eve? I don't know. I don't know. We do know that Satan, that, that, excuse me, that Adam was with Eve in the garden. We don't know how close when she was tempted. But we do know that she took it and she ate it and she gave it to Adam who was with her. Now that with her could mean something else than standing right by her. But it is possible that both of them were there and that they were both interacting. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived and not Adam. So, it's possible that Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't, but he didn't stop her from taking the apple and eating it for whatever reason. It's possible that he wasn't with her as in right beside her, but it's talking about with her in the garden, but wasn't right beside her when he's tempted. So, these are things that that I don't think that we can say. And why Eve and not Adam? I I don't think that we could say that either. I, I don't know. These are just things when you ask why questions, we don't know. I know there are certain things that people say about it, but I don't believe that they are that they are right. Um, and um, we could talk about those things if someone has a question more about what people say about why Eve was tempted instead of Adam. And um, so, Jari, I'm sorry, I'm just not able to answer those questions better, but why questions are really hard to answer because I don't know what's going on inside of Satan Unless the Bible tells me. And I don't know what's going on inside of God unless the Bible tells me. And there are a lot of things that God does. The secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. Um, And the same thing is true with Satan, right? There are things that God hasn't told us about him. And there are things that God has told us about him. And so, um, we just don't know. There are just certain things that we don't know. Our next question comes from Heath. Uh, Heath, good to see you. He joins us from uh, Facebook. Heath says, why do you think it's okay to judge and divide believers that way? So Heath, I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about. Are you talking about denominations? Um, I don't know that it is. If you're talking about denominations, I think that denominationalism, let me put this, an overemphasis on, denomina- on denominationalism is carnal. I I think that if you put an emphasis on your church above other churches, and you ought to love your church, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you don't love your church. I'm just saying that different denominations uh, and putting an emphasis that you're better because of your denomination is carnal. Years ago, I used to play on Calvary Tucson softball team, and I got there early and another church in Tucson was playing Sun Life Chapel and um, they needed someone to play. And they'd asked if I would help them. I was just standing watching And they said, will you guys play, will you play on our team? I said, sure. And um, I joined them, we went out to, to, to the field and we came in, and we sat in the dugout. And they asked me what church I attend because this was a church league, church softball league. And I said, Oak okay, Tucson. And they said, they were truly excited. This is Sun Life Chapel. They, they were truly excited. Wow, Calvary Tucson, well, great. We're really good to have you here. We love it, we love the pastor there. Um, They said, we love Pastor Robert. And um, I was just quiet. And then a few minutes later, one of them says, what's your name? And I said, Robert. And they said, Robert who? Because by then I think they were starting to suspect. And I said, Robert Furrow. And I'm really glad they said that they liked me instead of man, we hate your pastor, you know. But I was struck by that. They were genuinely happy to see me as a brother in Christ, even though they went to another church. And before they knew who I was, they didn't start saying, you want to really follow God? You should come to our church. You should come and see what our church is about. Um, Gil Garcia is a good friend of mine um, and it, it is a friend. And we made connections way back then. And um, so uh, denominationalism should never be there. We should not be overemphasis on denominationalism. It's the world we live in. I don't think it was ever god's plan but it's the way things happened and they happened you know for a reason they happened because the church went a different direction and then new denominations start and sometimes new denominations have started for for right reasons and sometimes for wrong reasons but i don't think it was god's plan ever and that we are to be unified as believers we are in we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the faith, the Bible says. And not just once, by the way. As you make your way through the epistles, you find it again and again and again. And so, no, I do not believe it's okay. If this is the question you're asking, Heath, and if it's not, I'm sorry, I went off on all of this without it really being your your question. Uh, But I do not think it's okay for us to judge one another based on denominations. I don't think we should judge each other at all, but God judges. And it ought to be a real commitment to christ that matters and the fact that you go to a different church than i do um, doesn't mean anything if you love jesus and when we get into heaven there's not going to be a section for calvary chapel a section for lutherans a section for methodists a section for catholics it's going to be those who know jesus walked with him and loved him all right so thank you heath i um, appreciate your question if you are joining us for the very first time Really glad to have you here. Uh, if you have a question, then write, a word, qu- write the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of your question. That will help me to identify it on in the comment section. Uh, and then um, I'll bring it in and we'll take a look at that question, all right? And if you are joining us for the very first time, say hi. I, I'd love to um, see uh, those of you that are joining us. And so this is a question that comes from Tyler. Tyler says, If you have invited Christ into your heart, can you be demon-possessed? How can you have the Spirit of God in you and another spirit? Um, Thank you, Tyler. Uh, That's perfect thinking. When we are born again, we we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of what we will receive when our bodies are transformed and this mortality puts on immortality, this corruptible puts on incorruptible, and we become like Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us the moment we're born again. Plus, we can be empowered by God to do the work that God's called us to do and be gifted by God to do that work. And so, many deliverance ministries believe that you can be, de- let, me, let me reword that. I wanna, I wanna say things correctly. Some deliverance ministries Believe that you can be demon-possessed as a believer. And I've noticed, you know, the Bible talks about winds of doctrine, false doctrine being like winds of doctrine, and we're not to give into the winds of doctrines. And winds go in circuits, currents. And these false teachings come around and around and around. And it will, you know, there'll be one group that believes in, in demonism, and they emphasize it, and it becomes a demon everywhere, and everybody has to have a demon cast out of them. And then it kind of goes away, and then it kind of comes back. There are two extremes, and I heard someone say this not long ago, there are two extremes, that demons are everywhere and that demons are nowhere. That spiritual warfare is what you need to to really be close to Christ or that you don't need spiritual warfare to be close to Christ. And both of these are wrong. If you, you are already possessed, I like to say, and you might say that explains a lot, but you are possessed, by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is in you, then a demonic spirit cannot be in you. So the Bible says greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus said to his disciples, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions. That's a metaphor for the satanic world. Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. And in 1 John we're told, "If." We are in Christ. We do not sin, and the evil one cannot touch us. And and in context, we do not practice sin. And I say that because early on in the book, same book, Book of First John, it says, "If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth isn't in you." Then later on, it says, "If we are in Christ, we don't sin, and the evil one can't touch us. The evil one cannot touch us if we genuinely are in Christ." Um, Jesus told Peter, "You are Peter. You are." Petros, Petros, Peter's name in Greek, and on this Petra bedrock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we cannot have Satan in us. Now, the Bible does say don't give place to the enemy. And I believe that a Christian can give place to Satan. I believe he can be influenced by him. I believe that if he gives place to the enemy and continues to listen to what the enemy is trying to do, that he can have severe issues in his life and if you wanna define oppression that way, then I would believe that a Christian could be oppressed if he gives place to the enemy. However, oftentimes when these deliverance ministries use the word oppression, they end up using possession language. And so it tells me they really don't believe in oppression. They believe in depression, in possession, maybe even depression as well, but they believe in possession. And so, you cannot be possessed if you are a Christian. The evil one cannot be inside of you if you are genuinely born again. All right, all bets are off. If um, you have not really made a genuine commitment to Christ, but if you've made a genuine commitment to Christ, then you cannot be possessed. And um, these doctrines are going to come out around and around and around. Um, Whether it's Anderson or Derek Prince, or other people who believed in these deliverance movements, often they do weird things. Um, Derek Prince would often have people throw up demons, hand out barf bags at the door for people to throw their demons up into a bag. Um, others believed that they could see demons clinging on to people. I call them Klingons, that they believed in Klingons, not the ones from Star Trek, but that they believed they are hanging on to people and they could see, I could see a Klingon hanging on to your mind. Um, I could see a Klingon hanging on your genitals. And so, yeah, that's, the, that's the demon of lust or whatever it is. And all of that is weird and strange, which doesn't make it untrue, but unbiblical. And that makes it untrue, okay? Because it's unbiblical. If those were things we had to do, then the Bible would tell us that. First, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by God. The inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. That means I don't need anything that's extra biblical. There might be extra biblical truth, not saying that. But everything I need in Christ comes from the Word of God. And we need to hold on to it, we need to live it. This is it. This is is what we are to live for, committed to Christ. Um, I tell pastors, make sure you give the word of God to people. Your opinions, your ideas, your wittiness, your stories may all be great, but the word of God is what changes people's lives and gives you everything that you need. And you're gonna keep yourself from false teachings and false teachers. And remember, the Bible says in the last days, people are gonna teach doctrines of demons. The fact that you could be, if you're teaching, it is a fact that you could be demon-possessed if you're a Christian. I see that as a doctrine of demons. I think it's one of the false teachings of the last days. And I think it's a sign that we're living in the last days. I think there's a lot of other false teachings like God wants you rich, God never wants you going through difficulties, God never wants you sick. Those kind of things are all false teachings uh, today as well. So um, let me go ahead and bring in our next question here. And this comes from Cindy cindy joins us from youtube cindy good to see you cindy says pastor robert can you speak of generational curses we've been studying the life of moses in exodus 34 7. it talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children can you explain this yes cindy thank you very much for asking your question um so there's two different passages in the bible there's this passage which talks about visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children. Then there's another passage that says that God will not punish the child for the sins of the parent, nor the parent for the sins of the child. So how can these two passages that seem to say the opposite coexist? Because I believe that the passage in Exodus 34 7, and um, I do want to go there, so let's go ahead and go there. Uh, I believe that this passage is talking about—what's um, the right word? If, I, uh, if, if my children are small and I make a decision not only to live against God, but to do some really ungodly things, let's just say I get addicted to heroin, it's going to affect my children and, and, and maybe alcoholism. Is going to affect my children. And so there are things that people do. And because they do that, it affects their children. It's not that their children are being punished. Maybe collateral damage is the right word. That you have these outflows in your life. The Bible says that you sow what you reap. And you've got these things in your life that you're doing that are wrong. And they affect the people around you. No one lives on an island by themselves. What I do affects people around me and they especially affect our children and sometimes to the third and fourth generation. And I believe that that my godliness, my genuine godliness can affect my great-great-grandchildren as well as my, my genuine carnalness could affect my great-great-grandchildren. So I'm, I'm looking while I'm talking, I'm looking at this passage to, to uh, look at it. So, let's go ahead and do that. Make sure I'm in the right place here. Um, Yeah, yeah. This is a good passage, by the way. I mean, it just says some great things. You're going to see this. Um, So, this is Exodus 34, verse 7. And it says, let me make sure I get here to the right place. Now, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, which is Yahweh. Which is the great I am. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Read that verse and tell me that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children to the third uh, and the fourth generations so moses made haste and bowed down so i do not believe that he's saying that he's judging them for the sins or, or not clearing the guilt of a child i don't think he's declaring the children guilty i don't think that you can get that from this text he's not declaring that these kids are guilty He's just saying that he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon children to the third and fourth generation. And this, I think, speaks of a principle that what we do affects our children. Now, if that really is true and what we do does indeed affect our children, then we should make sure that we have things right, that we get sin out of our lives, that we don't have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives. Because we want good things for our children and grandchildren. Oftentimes we would be willing to trade the place of our kids and grandkids when something bad happens to them. And so, um, yeah, literally the Bible says that you are that, that you are not to punish the child for the father's sin or the father for the child's sin. And God told the, the children of Israel to stop saying. They would they had statements, um, our parents ate sour grapes and our teeth are set on edge. And what they meant by that is their parents have sinned and now we have the guilt from it. You don't have guilt and that's not what it means. And this concept of generational curses, there are no generational curses. So again, it's a false teaching. Just like you could be demon possessed. And so they, they believe that they got to bring people up and pray over them and, and free them from their, the curse. If you are under any curse, then you are set free the moment you receive Jesus as your savior. Because he became a curse for us. And we are no longer under a curse. We are blessed, the Bible says. I'm blessed. It's not a matter of luck and unluck. Un- unluck. It's not a matter of being lucky or unlucky. It's a matter of being blessed or and not cursed. And that's the truth. All right, Cindy. So this is really important. And I'm not saying people that teach these things, demon possession and um, generational curses are false teachers. I don't know to that. I can't speak to that. They might be, they might not be. But what I can say is that they are false teachings. But the Word of God teaches something entirely different than these things. All right, Cindy, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Our next question, and thanks for joining us. Our next question comes from John. John says, uh, question. I read last week that the um, Russia started sending more missiles and advisors to Syria. Is it possible that they are using the Ukraine as a false flag, Ezekiel 38? Glad you're feeling better. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. And I hope that any of you guys that have gotten COVID here recently are feeling better as well. Um, Sure, I think that's possible. Um, We have a few things happening and we talked about this last week in our first, uh, our Saturday in our Q&A on our first question that for the first time in history, You have Iran and Russia allied. They are against Israel. And there's a proxy war going on in Syria today. It is Iran and Saudi Arabia fighting a proxy war through um, Lebanon and other people that are, are there fighting. And they are fighting in Syria as a proxy war for Saudi Arabia and Iran which have America and Russia behind them. And so we see everything divided. And what's happening in Syria is absolutely tragic. It's just such a, tr- a great tragedy. Be praying for these people whose cities are being destroyed in Syria. This has been going on for years. And I believe that this war, remember, Israel has a border with Syria. And Ezekiel 38 talks about this coalition of nations that comes against Israel and the young lions can't say anything. And I think the young lions may be a reference to the United States. I'm not saying for sure, but it may be a reference to the United States or to a coalition that would stand against them that they can't do anything. Seems like we are becoming more and more powerless uh, today to be able to, to do anything to protect Israel. But that's okay because God can protect Israel. And when you look at the United States, you see that we truly became great after we backed Israel in the 1948 war. And I know there are some people who don't like that, but look at it. We truly became a great nation after we backed militarily Israel in their war of independence. And God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So yes, John, I do believe that it's possible uh, that this is all just smoke and mirrors, and what they really want to do is attack Israel with this coalition and um, the coalition that you find in Ezekiel 38. Some of the places they're they're quite we, we don't know really where they're from, and there's questionable people have different ideas, but some of them like Kush is the Sudan, Libya is mentioned, um, parts of Turkey are mentioned, Rosh or the the leader of Gog may may refer to Russia, and I think Rosh does refer to Russia, um, and Iran is Persia, and that's definitely mentioned. And these are all, today, they hate Israel. All these nations, the leadership of these nations, hate Israel. That says nothing about the people of these nations, okay? But it says that the leadership hates Israel. And this is an alignment. It's one of the reasons that I believe that we are living in the last days. There's one more piece to this, and that is that we are the first generation Since 70 AD, Jesus said that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Daniel 7 said that the the Antichrist is going to come from the people who destroyed Jerusalem. That was the Romans who destroyed it. And we are the first nation since then, excuse me, the first generation since then to have Israel as a nation in the world today. Not only that, but God has put weapons in their hands, just as he said he would in Ezekiel. 36, 37, 38, 39, it has been fulfilled. And the next step is that they will receive Jesus as their savior. Jeremiah 30, verse seven says that the time is great. Talk about the tribulation period. The time is great. It is a time of God's wrath and anger. And that uh, Jacob, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That Israel will be saved out of it. It is a time of Israel's trouble, but they will be saved out of it. So we know that God's not done with Israel yet. Because, as a nation, they are going to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And what an exciting day that is going to be. All right? So um, thank you. Um, so Cindy, yep, I saw your question. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you, John, for asking that question. Um, Cindy, I'm gonna I might come back to your question. We are look we just look for one question per person per episode. And I'm going to get these questions back a little bit later on. Is this a follow-up question? Let me see. Um, yeah, okay. So, it's the same question. You just put a Q in front of it. All right. So, thank you uh, for that. So, if you are joining us here for the very first time, really glad you're here. Go ahead and say hi. Let us know that you're watching. And um, if you have a question, then write it out and put the word question or a Q in front of it or a question mark in front of it so that I can see it as I'm making my way through the comment section, that it's a question, because there's a lot of activity going on here, which I love, by the way. This has become a gathering place, a place of koinonia and fellowship. And I would just say, let your gentleness be known to all men, all right? And um, and, and then go ahead, reread it a couple of times and go ahead and submit it. And let's be kind and caring uh, towards one another. So, I'm going to bring in our next question here. Our next question comes from Paul. Paul, good to have you here. Uh, Good to see you. Paul says, when the Bible speaks of Jesus judging the living and the dead, it's confessing whether the people that have already died before and after Jesus, are they waiting somewhere to be finally judged by Jesus when he comes again? Or are we all judged as soon as we die? Thank you paul i appreciate your question um yes there there are two stages to the resurrection the two stages are the first resurrection and the second death and daniel twelve twelve 12 says some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt the first resurrection goes all the way through the tribulation period so you have jesus that's resurrected shortly after his death after three days he's part of the first resurrection then you have the rapture of the church, which is a, a, a resurrection because people are brought out of the graves and into with God. And so that is a part of the first resurrection. Then you have the tribulation saints that have been killed during the tribulation who are genuine Christians, who became Christians after the rapture of the church. Or they were, were you know, again, Jewish, they became Christians, all of them. I guess Jews are Gentiles who became Christians and they are resurrected. That's part of the first resurrection. And then after the tribulation period, the rest of the dead are resurrected. And there are people who are still alive on the earth when the white judgment seat takes throne takes place and God is the judge of the living and the dead. Uh, I think that could be a reference as well to God judging us now. That God judged the dead and God judges the living. And he judges them after we die and those who are alive on the earth when... Jesus finally causes them to be resurrected because there are people living during the millennium that he judges the living and the dead. So there are two resurrections, the first and the second death, and he's going to judge during both of those and that God does judge people while they're alive. By the way, if you don't know Jesus and you've done some things that need to be forgiven, which we all have, but maybe you've done some really bad things, God's going to judge you. He judges people while they're living he doesn't just judge people after they die he judges the living and the dead all right thank you paul i really appreciate it uh, thank you for joining us if you're joining us here for the very first time really glad to have you if you have a question then you can write your question out um put the word question or question mark in front of it re-read it a couple of times make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit your questions and uh, again reread it make sure that it makes sense. I see a question here that I'm not sure what it says. Um well, maybe I can figure this out. All right. So let's bring this in. I think it's Don Thompson. Don, thank you for joining us. Um Don says, should they get buried the church. So I think what you're saying is 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 you know, something else besides burial okay. Is it okay to um be cremated for for instance and the answer to that is yes it is okay to be cremated the bible never says anything in the new testament about a body being burned not being able to make it into heaven or about anything happening to the body and so if something else were to happen and someone isn't buried for whatever reason um sometimes people take and i guess that's cremated as well but they they you know if you get eaten by a Shark, (laughs) and your body's not going to be buried, Um, and or or eaten by piranhas. Your body's not going to be buried, and so God can figure all of that out. And so, if you, and and I'm not quite sure exactly what you're asking, Don. Now that I'm thinking about it, should they get buried? The church. Um, Maybe you can rewrite, rephrase that. All right. This is kind of what I'm talking about when I say you want to reread something a couple of times through. Um, make sure that it makes sense. And so we have a question here um, from Irene and Irene says, what is the third heaven? So Paul says, I was caught up into the third heavens and saw things and the Greek it literally says that would be illegal to share. So a lot of people today say that they've been caught up into the third heaven. The first heavens would be where birds fly. The second heavens would be in space. It would be where the planet, where the moons circulate around Jupiter. That's the second heavens and all of that space. The third heavens would be where God is. His throne is actually there. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know exactly what he saw because the Bible says no one can see God and live. But he saw God high and lifted up and it concerned him. And that's the third heaven. So that's his throne room. So that's what the third heaven is. And I think Mormonism came up with seven heavens that there are, and they have their explanation for seven heavens. There's not seven heavens. Um, there's just the third heaven, which the Bible refers to as being the place where God's throne is. And people today who say that they die and go to heaven, and they see certain things, they come back and they explain it. I'm skeptical about all of those. Could they be true? Maybe. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm simply saying I'm skeptical of all of them. And I don't listen to them and I don't watch them because I'm skeptical of them. And I don't know that they are really telling the truth. They they may think they they died and went to heaven or they may think that they um, went to heaven, but I'm skeptical of it. And they might, as I said, they might have done that. So, um, good to see you guys. And as I'm looking here through it, it looks like I've come to the end of our questions. So, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here and catch a couple of questions. And um, we have Vance joining us. Um, good to see you, Vance. Um, I kind of wrote you a, a note saying I'm looking forward to meeting you. Uh, good to have you here. Um, so, Vance is joining us. I don't know if he wants us to tell us, but he used to play for the Denver Broncos. I, think he, I don't know if he played anywhere else, Vance. But I remember watching you as one of the three amigos a while back. And I'm looking forward to meeting you. All right, so um, let's see. So we have a a question here again from Jari. Um, And Jari asked a question earlier. We usually take one question, unless we've got time to take another one, uh, two from people. And so we've got time to be able to do that. All right, so um, Jari says, for future and should we live like our prayers have already been answered? Is this a biblical teaching or false? I'm believing for healing, Live like it has already happened. All right. Thank you, Jari, for your question. Uh, I think that this is—I think that this is exaggerated. This teaching, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the idea of confession that you speak it into existence. And so I'm not going to say that I've got a knee injury. If I'm believing God for healing, I'm going to say I've got my knee injury because God's already healed my knee. Well, think about it. There is a way in which that's true. There in heaven, there's no one who's lame. There's no one who's sick. Your injured knee will not be injured in heaven. So there is a way in which you've already got your healing. But that's not what they mean when they say this. I think that we should be, I think we should be honest. I don't think that we should be saying things like, like, I'm not sick. I don't have cancer. If you have cancer, you could say, I have cancer but I'm believing God for healing. This is not a formula that God goes, oh, they're confessing that they're not sick. And so, therefore, I'm going to heal them if they would have confessed sickness. No wonder you're sick. You're saying you're sick. See, that's what they say. No wonder you're sick. You're saying you're sick. This has been around, Jari, since I first became a Christian. I went to an extremely charismatic church, an extreme charismatic church when I was still a teenager. I went to an Assembly of God church when I was still a teenager and there was a a portion of it. There was a portion of the church that rejected these teachings, the Assembly of God church. The Extreme Charismatic church believed it. And I also went to a Foursquare church which is a Pentecostal church as well. And there was a portion of that church especially that believed you shouldn't be confessing if you have an injury or an illness and the majority of the church didn't believe it. So I don't want to paint this as something that Pentecostals believe but you find it mainly in Charismatic and Pentecostal churches. That's where you find this mainly. You're not going to find this in a Calvary Chapel. You're not going to find this in a Baptist church. At least you're not going to find a lot of it. You may find people who believe it, but you're not going to find a lot of it. This mostly comes up in Charismatic and and Pentecostal churches. And I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that's the truth. And um, Jari, I I don't believe that you should be doing this. Um, You have freedom in Christ. And, and do what you want to do. I'm not telling you what you can and can't do. I'm just saying, I think that this is problematic. I think that we ought to be honest. And if I am believing God for a healing and I've seen God heal. My mother-in-law had a biopsy of lung cancer. And when they went and took the lobe out, they didn't find any. We prayed for her, anointed her with oil. They didn't find any cancer. And I'm not saying it's our prayers that healed her. I'm just saying God healed her. My late wife had lung cancer. Her daughter, we prayed for her, anointed her for oil, believed that God was going to heal her. And she had great confidence that God had healed her. And she passed away from lung cancer in 2012. And and, and for a while, I remember I had said to pray for my wife, um, we were at one of our leaders, pastors and leadership conferences. I said, pray for my wife. She has lung cancer. And afterwards she says, I've been healed from my lung cancer. You need to tell them I don't have it. And another pastor got up and said, God's touched her and healed her because they heard her say that. And she passed away from it. Why was my mother-in-law healed and not her daughter? I don't know. But I don't think it has anything to do with confession. We we want to do what the Bible says to do and not be caught up in these kind of teachings that are false. Um, Not only does it touch healing, by the way, Jari, but wealth. You know, don't say I'm poor. Don't say you're struggling. Say I'm rich. My God owns all the cattle on 100 hills. Say I'm rich. Um, Say uh, I've got a Cadillac or I've got a two-story house. I mean, it goes to the absolute bizarre, um, these kind of teachings. And if I'm talking about a teaching, Jari, that you've heard from one of your pastors in an assembly of god church i'm not saying that they are not a genuine believer this is really important i'm just saying that they're teaching something that's unbiblical they're teaching something that is false i've changed my mind on a few things i believe that means i taught them i've taught the bible for almost for 40 years i've taught the bible i was a youth pastor before i was a senior pastor and i've been a senior pastor this october for 37 years so i've taught the bible for 40 years and i've changed my mind as I've grown more familiar with scripture on certain things. That means I taught something that was false. I've taught a false teaching that doesn't make me a false teacher. It doesn't make them a false teacher, but this teaching needs to be rejected. It's unbiblical. Um, this confess and possess um, kind of thing is um, is borrowed from some motivational speakers and from, from people that weren't teaching scripture and so this is really important all right jari so thank you very much um you don't need to run around and say things um that aren't true i'll tell you one more story and then i'll close things i'll tell this really quick i um was the youth pastor in calvary chapel of albuquerque uh, skip heitzig was the pastor there and um one of um and, and while i was teaching um I, a, a new child children's director was hired And he thought the youth was under his control. Later on, I found out that it was never intended for me to be under him. I didn't care. But he came in and sat down in the middle of one of our teachings. So he didn't come up and tell me, hi, my name is so-and-so and and, um, I'm the new director for children here. And um, I'm just gonna come in and look at what you're doing. And I think you're under me, or you're under me authority-wise. I had no problem being under him. But when he came in and sat down and I thought, this is weird. And I really didn't even know who he was. And, and well, I knew he was new on staff. He was a pastor on staff. That's all I knew. And so um, when he came in and sat down, I kind of wanted to pull his leg a little bit. And so I said, listen, I'm, ta- I'm teaching the kids. If your knee hurts, if your knee's injured, then you need to say to God, this is 37 years ago, or yeah, over 37 years ago now. Um, if your knee is injured, you need to say to God, I, uh, I my, my knee's not hurt. You need to say to the people around you, if they say, why are you limping? I'd say, I'm not limping. I my knee does not hurt. My knee's not. And so you know this whole positive confession thing. And um, while he was looking at me, he was listening to me teach, and he was shaking his head yes. And I got felt really awkward, and I finally had to stop and say I'm kidding because so and so is here with us. I I was joking, and I thought I would teach a false teaching that would flip him out. Now he might have been going like this. This might have been what was going on in his mind. We're gonna have to fire this guy. This guy's teaching a false teaching. He might have been saying hmm that's a really good teaching. If he was. I think that's problematic, um, but you might have been thinking, I'm going to have to deal with this. Later on, I learned that we were not really uh, under him and um, that my, I, was, I was directly under um, Skip, who is the pastor, still is the pastor in Calvary Albuquerque and is a good friend. All right? So, just kind of, to me, a funny little story about con- the confession doctrine and how I taught it as if it was true. And I had to go back and correct myself even in the teaching because um, it didn't look to me like it was getting the desired effect that I had in my silly joke, all right? So thank you guys very much for joining me. It's really good to see you. I'm glad we could gather together and, and look at questions in the light of scripture. Stay close to Jesus. Believe God's word. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Uh, God's Word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It will radically change your life. Tonight, we're going to be talking about anxiety. Overcoming anxiety the biblical way. This is our service, our Wednesday night service. We have two campuses. You can join us if you're in Tucson for either one of those campuses. um, Or you could join us live online at 6 p.m. That's just a couple of hours from now. A little less than a couple hours from now. And we're not talking about worry as if it is trivial. A lot of times, and this is the beginning of my study, a lot of times pastors will teach uh, a teaching on worry like, you shouldn't be worrying. Uh, worry like a rocking chair, gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. You shouldn't be worrying because you know, a lot of things that you're worried about, things that don't matter or that don't happen to you. No, I'm talking about how not to have anxiety overcome you when your world is unraveling. When there's very, the Bible tells us that we can have peace when there's very real reasons why we should be disturbed. Like Peter on the water. He's walking on the water during a storm, and he has peace. He's looking at Jesus. But when he looks at the wind and the waves, he sinks. Should he have been concerned? He's in the middle of a storm, and he's walking on water. We could say, yeah, from a human perspective, yes. But he could have trusted in Christ. And the Bible says that he, Isaiah 26, 3, He keeps in perfect peace those who trust in Him, like Peter in the middle of a storm. You may be in the middle of a storm today, but God's going to keep you in perfect peace. So join us in about um, two hours. Uh, You can watch us on YouTube, uh, Roku, Apple TV. You can go to calvarytucson.com, or you can come out and join us live. All right, God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus.